you were listening to the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. Red Hill Church is a gospel-centered, missional church in the Edwardsville Glen Carbon community of the St. Louis Metro East. We exist to glorify God and make disciples by sharing the gospel and sharing our lives. Good morning. Uh, if you all would remain standing for the reading of God's word, I'm Marcus. I'll be reading our scripture for us today. Uh, we'll be in Luke 9, uh, verses 43 through 56. While everyone was amazed at all the things he was doing, he told his disciples, let these words sink in. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand the statement. It was concealed from them so that they could not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. And an argument started among them about who was the greatest of them. But Jesus, knowing their inner thoughts, took a little child and had him stand next to him. And he told them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. For whoever is least among you, this one is great. And John responded, Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. Don't stop him, Jesus told him. Because whoever is not against you is for you. And when the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of himself, and on the way they entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But they did not welcome him, because he determined to journey to Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. The word of the Lord. All right. Thanks, Marcus. Happy Easter. Happy Easter season, everybody. Glad to be here with you again. Thanks for everyone who prayed for me, prayed for each other. We had an amazing service last week, an awesome time of ministering to each other, praying over each other, encouraging each other, and reminding each other that we can hold joy and sorrow at the same time. We can be sad about stuff and also be grateful and joyful at the same time. We're complex beings created in the image of a holy God. Last week, as we kicked off the series last week, we, we walked through Peter's confession of the Messiah, Jesus predicting his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus telling his disciples, take up your cross and follow me, like anybody who's going to follow me has to take up their cross daily and follow me. Uh, Jesus is transfigured before a few of his disciples, they get to see his glory. Peter, uh, you know, saying what everybody's thinking is like, how about if we just build some tents and live here? And uh, then they come down off the mountain and discover that the other disciples were unable to drive out a demon, even though Jesus had given them authority over demons, they weren't able to drive it out. And Jesus very quickly drives out the demon and uh, everybody's astonished. God has spoken, this is my son. We have discovered through uh, last week, Jesus is the anointed Messiah, he's God's son. He's the one appointed by God to be the final sacrifice for sin, the final offering for sin. And this week, we're continuing this theme of victory that that Jesus has won for us, and we're going to be talking about the central defining characteristic of Jesus's life, which I believe is obedience, because the central and defining characteristic of our lives seems to be disobedience. You know what I mean? Like we, we, uh, I think it's C.S. Lewis who says that the law of nature says everything in nature does what it is supposed to do. But the law of human nature says humans do not do what we are supposed to do. 
We know what we're supposed to do. We seem unable to do it. You put a human in a circumstance where they can do the right thing or the wrong thing. Sometimes they choose to do the right thing, but the consistent feature is that we're oftentimes self-serving and self-oriented and self-focused. But if you put a lion in a cage with something that is made of meat, then the lion will always eventually kill and eat that thing or you know, be killed by it if it's named David, I guess, or you know, one of the mighty men of David who killed a lion on a snowy day. It's a cool story. It's in the Old Testament. Look it up. Anyway, all that to say, perfect obedience of Jesus, the perfect obedience lived out by Jesus is not just the central characteristic of his life. It's actually the central truth of all humanity, of all human history. It's the most important and central truth of all humanity because if Jesus wasn't a spotless lamb, then he could not be an offering for your sin or for mine. He had to be a flawless lamb in order to be an acceptable sacrifice. His obedience is incredibly important. In Philippians chapter two, before we even dive into today's text, I'm just gonna flip over to Philippians chapter two and I wanna read a few verses starting in verse five. It says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, or your translation might say a thing to be grasped, like held on to. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had become, excuse me, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. I'm gonna adjust my mic just a little bit so we don't get as much pop, maybe. So Jesus becomes obedient, not just obedient in a way that's convenient and easy, but even to the point of death and even to the point of death on a cross. And this is the central claim of Christianity, that Jesus Christ was an acceptable sacrifice for my sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 really talks about it. It says this. Let me flip over to it really quickly. Paul, again, writing, he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21, excuse me, in 21, he says, he made the one, God, made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And I think it's important for us to know from the outset of today's message and from the outset of our attempts to follow and please God, it's important for us to know that Jesus Christ was sinless. He was obedient to every command that his father gave him. He said, I only do, I only say the things that I hear my father saying or I hear my father telling me to do. That was what he did. He came to be obedient and the consequences were going to be what they were. But he came not just to go suffer consequences, he came to be an obedient son because we could not do that. We couldn't live out obedience perfectly. So he came and he lived it out for us. So we're going to pick up here in chapter, uh, chapter 9 of Luke, the second part of verse 43, right where we cut off. It says, while everyone was amazed at all the things he was doing, he told his disciples, let these words sink in. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, but they did not understand this statement. It was concealed from them so that they could not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Let these words sink in. I'm sure at some point in your life, someone has told you, you really need to listen to this. This is important information. You're going to need this information. Pay careful attention. When Caleb and I went skydiving, by the way, they don't give you nearly enough training to jump out of an airplane at 10,000 feet. 
I'm just saying, it's like not even 30 minutes of training and you're gonna jump out of an airplane at 10,000 feet. But they were like, listen, there are some very important things that you have to pay attention to or you will die. When you hear stuff like that, you're like, oh, I better, I better perk up. This is not like the airplane announcement where they're like, you're hurtling at 50,000 miles an hour, 20,000 feet above the ground. And by the way, we're flying over Montana. But if we make a water landing, don't worry because your seat bottom will turn into a flotation device. Like, yeah, that's probably going to be my first concern when we hit water at 50,000 miles an hour. Oh, where's my flotation device? You know, anyway, it's not like that. It's like, these straps have to be done exactly like this. If you don't do these straps exactly like this, when you jump out of the airplane, you will have an exhilarating ride that will end badly. Do the straps correctly. So Jesus says to his disciples, let these words sink in. Pay careful attention. Consider it. Meditate on it. Think carefully about it. And can I tell you, 99.99% of the problems that I inflict upon myself and the pain that I inflict upon myself is a direct result of dishonoring what Jesus said to his disciples right here. Just not paying attention to what he said. I'm not here to tell you that every day, if you don't read your Bible every day, then you're a bad Christian. I am here to tell you that if you don't read your Bible every day, then you are forfeiting strength, power, and intimacy with a God who loves you. You're forfeiting it. It's available for you. In the same way that the treadmill is available for me in my garage, and the stationary bike is available for me in my garage, and the dumbbells on the dumbbell rack are available for me in my garage, and a plethora of bodyweight exercises available on YouTube, uh, YouTube are available for me on my computer. They're all there just waiting for me to utilize them so that I can gain strength, gain momentum, make progress in my life, Look, reading your Bible doesn't make you a Christian any more than eating food makes you a human. But if you want to be a thriving human, you have to have some kind of nourishment and nutrition. And if you want to be a thriving follower of Jesus, you have to make time in your life. You have to carve out time in your life, intentionally determine to set aside time to say, I'm just going to be with my father who loves me. I'm gonna open up the Bible, not so that I can say I crossed X number of chapters, not so I can check something off of a to-do list, and not because I want to impress another follower of Jesus or perform for another follower of Jesus or try to perform or impress God who's in heaven, but just because I wanna know him and I wanna know what does he wanna tell me today. If you don't do that, you're forfeiting power, you're forfeiting strength, you're forfeiting wisdom. Jesus says, let these words sink in. The son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. And then Luke makes an interesting turn of phrase right here in verse 45. He says, but they did not understand this statement. It was concealed from them so that they could not grasp it and they were afraid to ask him about it. What a strange turn of phrase. They didn't understand it. It was concealed from them. They were afraid to ask about it. When we get to something like this, I think it's important for us to consider the character of God. What is God really like? Does he want us to be kept in the dark about things? Are there certain things that he's like, I'm not gonna tell them that even though it would be extremely helpful for them to know it. I'm not gonna reveal that to them because I'm sort of like, 
you have to like do a little bit better dance for me. You have to provide a little bit better offering for me. And then if you do that, then I will give you more and I will show you more. And we're like, no, 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 that's not what we think until we need something. And we're praying and we go, God's never gonna give that to me because of who I am as a person. He's never gonna honor that request because of who I am. He would give that to Raiden, who's like a super Christian, <laughs> but but we, we start to betray our own theology when we think about things like this. I had a seminary professor once, um, a seminary dropout, don't be impressed, who told me, uh, he gave our class an assignment, excuse me, he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look back in the Exodus account and I want you to write a one-page position paper on this subject. Take a position. Did Pharaoh harden his own heart or did God harden Pharaoh's heart? And it's like, Oh, this will be awesome, right? Because it's gonna tell you right there in the Bible. And you know what it says in the Bible? Sometimes it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. And sometimes it says God hardened his heart. And it was like, well, I don't really wanna take a position on this. You know what I'm saying? Like, can we all just get along? Why do we have to fight about stuff? <laughs> I think right here, Jesus says, let these words sink in. They didn't understand because they didn't wanna understand. Sometimes we hear some things about Jesus and we go like, I don't really wanna, I don't really wanna have to think about that. I don't, I, don't, I don't want that to have to fit into my life. It's like the old joke, don't pray for patience. Why, why don't pray for patience? Because God will give you opportunities to be patient. Well, that's how you develop patience. Yeah, well, I don't actually want patience. Oh, okay, well then don't pray for patience. You know, but that's what it's like for the disciples, I believe, in this moment. As Jesus says, let these words sink in, the Son of Man's gonna be betrayed. No, that doesn't fit into the narrative that we're writing for you, Jesus. And by the way, every one of us is writing a narrative for Jesus to fit into in our lives. The number of times that I've heard someone who even is a follower of Jesus say, I could never follow a God who, fill in the blank. I could never worship a God who, fill in the blank. Well, you're creating a narrative for Jesus. You're putting him into a box and saying he has to be this, and if he's not that, then he's not a good enough savior for me. He's not a good enough God for me. I'll create something else. They didn't understand. It was concealed from them. I believe they didn't understand because they didn't want to understand, and they didn't ask him about it because they didn't want to know. In the same way that I don't pray for patience anymore, just like you don't pray for patience anymore. I just pray that people would stop bothering me. It's a much easier cut around. You know what I'm saying? Like, God, can you just work on everybody else? Leave me alone and just work on everybody else. I'm kind of tired of being shaped by you for a minute. I need a break. Give me a breather. And God's like, now nah, I got you on the wheel, buddy, and I'm grinding until you're smooth. I'm just, I'm grinding until you are into the image of my son. I am conforming you. It's why I think Philippians 1.6 is the scariest verse in the whole Bible. You can be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you is faithful and he will see it through to the day of completion. God is relentless and he's gonna keep working. In this moment, he says, let this sink in. And they don't let it sink in. And guess what? When God says, you guys need to pay attention to this and then we don't pay attention to it, we are the ones who suffer. We're the ones who are confused. We're the ones who are hurting. We're the ones who are frustrated. We're the ones who are angry. If you don't take anything else away, take this moment and just allow God to say to you as you look at his word, allow him to say to you right now in this moment, just let it sink into you. Take his word and let it sink in. That's how we're transformed from the inside out. Well, as Jesus 
is telling them, I'm going to be betrayed, almost immediately after telling them, I'm going to be betrayed, which was preceded by him telling them, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm gonna be handed over, I'm gonna be crucified, I'm gonna be rejected, I'm gonna be abused. All these things are necessary. In verse 46, just like good followers of Jesus that they were, an argument started among them about who was the greatest of them. I mean, come on, guys. You know what I'm saying? Jesus is like, I'm about to be betrayed in the hands of men. And one of them was like, I think I'm better than you. <laughs> and the other one was like, I don't think so. He's like, no, I'm pretty sure I'm better than you. I mean, if you look at my resume versus your resume, like I was one of the guys on the Mount of Transfiguration. Yeah, you're the one who said you should build tents and never come see the rest of us again. Way to go. Jesus obviously went for that. Well, you're the one who couldn't cast out a demon. Jesus gave you authority over the demons. Well, you could have come down off the mountain any time and cast out that demon. I'm assuming that it was something like that. Something sort of probably like what middle school teachers have to endure every single day, you know, or parents of children. You know, he touched me. Well, he touched me first. You know, it's probably something like that. It says in verse 30, uh, 47, but Jesus knowing their inner thoughts, hold up. <laughs> Jesus knows your inner thoughts. This should transform the way that you pray. You know, this should transform the way that you pray. I went to Sin Network Assessment recently, and one of the guys that we were assessing, when you talk to him, he's like a super normal, super normal person, like likable, friendly guy. And then he prayed, it was like, Father God, you're glorious beyond imagination and measure. And we were like, whoa. <laughs> I was like, I don't, I don't think this guy prays very much. All right, just my opinion. Jesus knows your inner thoughts. He knows that about me too. Knowing their inner thoughts. What does Jesus choose to do? Knowing their inner thoughts. It says he took a little child and had him stand next to him. I personally, I, I really, I, I love this. Uh, I love kids myself. I like having kids in our worship gatherings. I like having them running around. It, uh, you know, if you join Red Hill, one of the things that we ask you to do is to submit to a background check because we have little kids running around all over the place. Uh, when Phoebe's here, she usually comes up and gives me a high five during the worship gathering. We, you know, I've had instances. We had uh, many years ago a single mom and her little boy walked up during one service and just put his hands up. So I just picked him up and held him. And that's not because I'm like a wonderful person. It's just the way that God made me. But I like that Jesus has kids around because in this context, that wasn't normal. Kids weren't supposed to be around. It means men, women, and children are gathered around following Jesus together. And Jesus just grabs one of the kids. It's like being the kid at Disney on Ice that Mickey Mouse picks up and spins around the room. You know what I mean? I don't think they can do that anymore because of lawsuits, but you get the, the idea that I'm communicating here. It's like being the guy in the room that's chosen for the half-court shot and making the half-court shot. It's like every dream come true, every parent's dream come true. Jesus just puts his hand on a kid and goes, come over here, little kid, and stand next to me. And then he says to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. Suddenly this kid is the most popular person on the planet. I just like this kid, then I'm gonna be okay, right? That's not what Jesus meant, obviously. It was just a joke and nobody laughed and that's okay. Whoever come, he says, whoever welcomes me, welcomes him who sent me. So welcome this little child in my name, you welcome me. If you welcome me, you welcome the one who sent me. Why? For whoever is least among you, this one is great. Jesus doesn't have a problem with you being great. Did you know that? He does not have a problem with you being great. He doesn't have a problem with you being honored. He doesn't have a problem with you being exalted. You know how I know all that? 
because the Bible actually teaches it. It says that pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. James 4 says that God opposes the proud, but he exalts the lowly. God is not interested in tearing you down. He's not interested in you becoming less. He's interested in you becoming what you were always supposed to be. And the thing is this, you are not designed, you are not capable of getting yourself to that point. We can't get there on our own. That's the whole point. This is the insanity of pride. The insanity of pride is that we all have a mirror. Pride almost always is the shield that blocks our vision from our insecurities. I gotta put up this bravado and this pride that demonstrates to you I'm capable, I'm intelligent, and I have enough money. What I'm afraid of is that I'm incapable. What I'm afraid of is that I'm incompetent. What I'm afraid of is that I'm not gonna have enough money. What I'm afraid of is that I don't have enough talent. We see it everywhere, except for oftentimes in our own mirror. I wrote down a few thoughts about pride. Maybe someone will be helpful, maybe not. Pride takes no joy from a thing. Pride can take no joy from a thing. Pride takes no joy in having a thing. Pride takes joy only in having more of that thing than you have, or having a better thing than you have, or having that thing before you were able to get it. Pride demands that you take notice. Pride is all mouth and no ears. Pride's like PCP. <laughs> I, I grew up in the just say no era of drug uh, enforcement and, and things like that. I grew up when dare was not what dare is now. It was drug and alcohol resistance education. I don't know what it, the abbreviation is now. It's something different now. But back then it was like, you were told horror stories about every drug that was out there. And they made commercials where they would crack an egg. They'd be like, this is your brain. And then they crack the egg open a, over a skillet that was real hot and the egg would start frying. And you'd go, this is your brain on drugs. And I was like, my brain on drugs is delicious with some salt and pepper, I guess. I don't know. I'm not sure what you're communicating here other than it fries your brain. Is that what we're saying? You know, I'm not 100% sure. But we were told all these crazy stories about what drug use would do to you. And, and the favorite stories for me were the ones of people who got on PCP or, or as it was called back then, angel dust. I don't hear much about PCP anymore because most of its users die tragically and horrifically. Because what PCP would do to a person is it would make them believe that they were capable of anything. Like, I can pick that car up. I can, I can run headfirst into that moving bus and I'll live. People on PCP would jump off of buildings because they believed that they could fly. They would discover that they could fly briefly, but they could not land. Pride's like PCP. It makes you believe in yourself too much. It makes you think too highly of your own skill set. Pride believes that talent, brains, power, influence, and wealth are the true measuring sticks of success and of life itself. And it says, I got there because I'm better than you. Jesus, by comparison, emptied himself of pride. He humbled himself. He actually had all the power. He had everything. He was everything. And the scriptures tell us he emptied himself. And then he tells us, you're supposed to be like me. 
So, for example, Jesus brings the child up. So I made a list, childlike and pride-like. If you're childlike, you're willing to be silly. That's one of my favorite things about kids. They're willing to be silly. So it, it doesn't really matter if it's not all the way like completely appropriate for the decorum of the room. They're willing to be silly. But if you're pride-filled, you're insecure. Insecure people can't be silly. They can't, they can't laugh at themselves or joke around about themselves. If you're childlike, you're eager to learn. If you're pride-like, you're eager to look smart and be in control. If you're childlike, you're creative. A good example of this is uh, Billy Madison when Adam Sandler draws a blue duck because he'd never seen a blue duck before. And Adam Sandler in that movie is extremely childlike. You're not afraid to just do something weird because, I don't know, you're just being creative. But if you're pride-filled, then you're critical. All you can see is the negative side of things. Children like to ask why. Pride-filled people like to tell you because. Children value playing games for fun. Pride-filled people want to show off. Children want to be your friend. Pride-filled people want to be honored by you and want to use you. Children are delighted to see you. I got to tell you, like, one of my favorite seasons of life as a dad was when my kids were little. And it's like, they'd be sitting at the window, just like, when I come home, it was like party time for an hour. Like, I got the kids, I'm wrestling, and Sarah's like, tag. Like, you are, whatever you create in there, that's, just keep it contained to one space, because I need a break. You know, three kids under the age of five will do that. They're delighted to see you. Pride-filled people are delighted to be seen. Uh, children are emotionally uninhibited. Pride-filled people are emotionally stunted. Children are almost always right on the edge of laughter. They're always ready to laugh, which I love. And if you've ever, like, when your kids are upset and then you make them laugh and they start laughing and then you point out that they're laughing, then they start raging because you made them laugh and then you laugh about them raging and they start laughing and eventually everybody's just laughing and tickling each other and having fun. You know, like this is children. They're always ready to laugh. Uh, Pride-filled people are always right on the verge of rage. Children don't require being in control or authority, but pride-filled people do. And the thing is, is that I see in myself sometimes that childlike aspect that Jesus wants and way more than I want all of those characteristics of pride. I can see in myself. I think it's important for, for us as we hear God's word speak to us, it's important for us to weaponize it against ourselves and not others. It's especially important for me as a preacher to let you know I'm not trying to roll down condemnation on you to say that I have something figured out that you don't, but to say that together as we open up God's word and as the spirit animates me to speak and to preach that we're all paying careful attention, that we're giving grace to others and that we're allowing conviction and repentance to bring grace to ourselves. Jesus just plops a child in front of them. They're in the midst of an argument about who's the best and he just brings out a kid and he says, you gotta be more like this. You just have to be more like this. And I would imagine that it meant even more to them than it does to us. Just from a cultural standpoint. John uh, steps up in verse 49. <laughs> James and John, man. John steps up, he says, here's his response. You have to be more like a little kid. You have to have childlike faith. 
Look at the innocence of this baby. And John responded, Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. <laughs> I mean, come on. At what point does Jesus just go like, okay, I'm gonna need five. I gotta take five, guys. I, just, I gotta take five. He's like, guys, I'm gonna be betrayed. It's necessary for me to suffer. I'm gonna be betrayed. I'm, I'm gonna die. I think I'm better than you are. Okay, all right, let's, how about another angle? Try to be more like this kid. Uh, I saw somebody over there casting out a demon and I was wondering if you want us to kill them. <laughs> I mean, come on, guys. Like, you gotta really read the Bible. This is a real story. These events actually happened. I mean, this is like, I'm serious. I just imagine Jesus like massaging his own temples. <sighs> serenity now, serenity now. But Jesus is better than me by a lot. Don't stop him, Jesus told him, because whoever is not against you is for you. This is like, this is incredibly helpful and important for us. There's, a, there's an old joke about a non-denominational Christian who dies and he goes to heaven. And, uh, and uh, so Jesus is showing him around. He's like, so you're non-denominational, so we're gonna take you through a different, couple different places, let you sort of you know, pick and choose. By the way, the joke is told differently depending upon who's telling it. He says, we're gonna let you take, a, you know, tour you through the different zones of heaven. And so they, they takes him into a beautiful cathedral and the Pope is there and he's, you know, he's given a beautiful homily in Latin and uh, they're, they're preparing the, the incense to be swung through. It's high church, organs playing, beautiful choir singing. This is the, this is the Catholic church. Like, okay, great, awesome. And then uh, he comes into the reformed section. In the reformed section, there's like a haze of cigar smoke everywhere. People are sitting around talking theology and uh, drinking bourbon. And uh, he's like, okay, this is, this is interesting. And then uh, he gets into the, uh, into the assemblies of God area and the worship is banging and people are speaking in different languages and everybody is excited and animated and just pumped up to be there. He's like, okay, this is, this is interesting. And then he gets to one and he's like, now listen, we keep the lights out in here. We have to be really quiet when we go in. I'll explain it afterwards. He's like, okay. He's like, so they sneak in the back and it's like, you know, pretty reserved. Everything's pretty calm and quiet. Everything's pretty under control. He doesn't say anything. They leave. And, and the guy's like, what, what was that? And he goes, he goes, those are the Southern Baptists. They think they're the only ones here. Okay, I'm Southern Baptist, it's okay, right? We can joke about it a little bit. There's only one banner that all Christianity unites under. That is the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's it, that's the one that we unite under. Some folks are traveling in the same car with us. That's our local church. We're in this thing together. We're in the same vehicle. Some are in the same lane as us. That's people who believe like we believe and, and, and we can work with them and partner with them. Some are on the same highway as us in a totally different lane, but still saying Jesus is the way to heaven. Jesus is the one that we give our lives to, that we believe in, that, that is the... Uh, the, the uh, appointed sacrifice for our sins, the only hope for humanity, that's Jesus. We can agree about that. We can travel on the same road. And then there are those who are on a completely different road from us. They're believing in something altogether different as some pathway to heaven or some spiritual paradise that exists out there. 
What I'm saying to you, I think, is maybe what Jesus is saying to his disciples. People who are not against you are for you. There is plenty for us to be in agreement about with people. It doesn't mean we have to believe everything that they believe. It doesn't even mean that we have to believe that they're right and we're wrong. I believe the things that I believe because I'm right. The height of faith is to say I've opened up God's word with the understanding that I have. I've put my faith in what Jesus has done for me and what the Bible says. But the height of pride is to say my interpretation of those things is the only correct interpretation of those things. Pride says there's no possible way I can be wrong. Faith says there's no possible way that God and his word can be wrong. Jesus is like, guys, those guys are casting out demons. The sons of Boadrones, that's James and John, the sons of thunder, what do they want to call down? They want to call down lightning. But the son of God, what does he want to call down? He wants to call down mercy. There are lots of churches that I disagree with a lot of what they do, but you know what? I'm not their pastor and I'm not their savior. So what we're going to do is open up our hands and say, this is what we believe with God helping us and allowing God to say, that's wrong. You need to change your belief based on what we understand of what God's word has to say. And then to say to everybody else, this is what we believe. If you want to be in this thing with us, you need to believe these things. But if you don't believe those things, it doesn't mean that I think you're going to hell. Listen, I mean, there are a lot of really amazing Christians that I disagree with about baptism. They might be right. Like, we have to let it settle in on us that they might be right, and I might be wrong. I don't think I'm wrong, which is why I believe what I believe. You don't think you're wrong, which is why you believe what you believe. And what we have to do together is say, let's open up God's word, let's take a look at it together, and then let's also say, listen, thank God for those people that are doing things a little differently than we are and are seeing people come to put their faith in Jesus Christ. There's a whole lot of stuff that we're gonna get to heaven and Jesus is gonna go, not even close. He doesn't say at the end, well done, my good and theologically precise servant. He says, good and faithful, right? Good and faithful. And Paul said, you can know how angels communicate with each other. You can understand all of the mysteries of life, but if you don't have love, it's nothing. It's meaningless. Anyway, I just think maybe Jesus is like, Maybe we just worry about ourselves. Maybe we just keep living in obedience to him. And when we see somebody doing something that we can say is a good thing for them to do, that we don't have to say, but because they disagree with me about this one specific thing, I'm canceling them publicly and cutting them off from all you know, communication and asking God to destroy their lives and to remove them from the face of the earth. That feels a little bit extreme. Try to stop him because he doesn't follow us. Don't stop him. I mean, don't stop him. Like, we gotta sort of deal with that on our own, I guess, a little bit. I don't know, I'd just rather be a gracious person with other people. I'd just rather be a gracious person. I'd rather get to heaven and God go, you know what, you were right, actually, and they were wrong, than get to heaven and have God go, you were way wrong and you were a real jerk about it, man. Because Jesus himself said that the measuring stick that I use 
against other people is the one that he's going to use against me. That's a pretty important thing for us to know as we're thinking about how we're going to interact with other people. Again, I'm not afraid to tell somebody, I think you're wrong about that. They shouldn't be afraid to tell me, I think you're wrong about that. We shouldn't be afraid to go to God's word together humbly and say, God, will you teach us? And then to walk away from it and go, we still don't agree, but we can still love each other and say, the most important thing, we agree about that. And God's gonna awaken people to hear the gospel from all kinds of places, from all kinds of people, from all kinds of churches. I wouldn't send you to just any church. I wouldn't commend to you just any church. There are plenty that I would say, don't go there. But anybody who's gonna stand up and say, Jesus Christ is the only hope of humanity. There's no other name given among men whereby you must be saved. He lived a sinless life. He died a substitute for your sins. He became the perfect sacrifice. He resurrected from death and your only hope of being made right with God is putting your faith in what Jesus did. Anybody who says that, I'd say that's worth listening to because they're not against me. It says in verse 51, when the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem or your translation might say, he set his face. I like that language. He sent messengers ahead of himself and on the way they entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him but they did not welcome him because he was determined to journey to Jerusalem when the disciples James and John saw this they said Lord do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them son of thunder right the sons of thunder want the lightning to fall (laughs) but he turned and rebuked them and they just went to another village he determined to go to Jerusalem He determined to journey there. He stiffened his face. He set his face. He was resolved no longer to linger. Hasten so glad and free. Those of you who have been in a hymnal before can appreciate that. He's resolved. It's going to happen. He's going to do it or he's gonna die trying. Nothing's going to stop him. He's going to Jerusalem. Why? Because he was obedient. The die was cast. He made up his mind. He's going to Jerusalem. And then he's got to go through this Samaritan village and the Jews and Samaritans were like the sharks and the jets. And when you're a jet, you're a jet for life. You know what I'm saying? Like they were ready to throw down at any point, at any moment. Why? Well, Jesus has interaction with a Samaritan woman in John chapter four. If you don't have a Bible reading plan today, go home and read the story of the woman at the well. He says, would you get me a drink? She's like, "Uh, I'm a woman, I'm a Samaritan. Uh, We don't really do that. Together, you guys worship over there. We worship over here. Everything in the whole world says that we shouldn't hang out together. And Jesus is like, well, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for a drink and then you'd never been thirsty again. She was like, that sounds amazing. You don't even have a pot. Where are you getting the water from? Jesus begins to tell her who he is and who she is. And then she becomes a great evangelist, leading her whole city to come out and hear the gospel as preached by Jesus. But one important thing takes place in there. As a Samaritan, she says, you guys worship over here. We worship over here. Jesus is coming through the Samaritan village. He sends word ahead. Why? He's got an entourage. He's an inconvenience. If 30 people show up to your house this evening looking for dinner and you're not hosting a GC, you're gonna be like, "Uh, let me look at my church center app real quick and tell you where you can find food tonight and at what time because this is a tremendous inconvenience. If your family shows up, 
with your extended family and their extended family, and they say, we're gonna stay with you for, your, for a few days. This is kind of a, maybe a little advanced warning would be helpful. That's what Jesus is doing. He sends some people ahead, and he's like, hey, let them know I'm coming. And here's what the Samaritans say. We don't want you here. Why? Because he was going to Jerusalem. We don't want you to go to Jerusalem. We're not gonna stand by you if you're going to do that. But if you'll worship on our mountain, if you'll do what we want you to do, then we'll welcome you. Does this sound familiar? Jesus is rejected because he's determined to go to Jerusalem. Jesus will not be less obedient to accommodate our preferences, our predispositions, or our predetermined patterns. He's not going to be less obedient to accommodate you. He understands the argument. The argument is this, yeah, but if Jesus could just, like, if this wasn't true, if this wasn't, if this is not actually what the Bible means here, then there'll be a lot more people that will put their faith in Jesus. If we can just sort of change Jesus a little, soften some of the sharp edges, culturally speaking, then there'll be a lot more people that will gladly and joyfully follow Jesus. Jesus already faced this temptation, guys. He faced this temptation from somebody who's much uh, better at temptation than you and I are. In Matthew chapter four, in the wilderness with the devil himself, Jesus, the final temptation is brought up on a hill. Satan shows him all of mankind and says, if you will just bow down and worship me, then all of this will be yours and everyone will bow down and worship you. And Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. There are so many times, so many ways that I'm like, I would really like to craft Jesus just a little bit more into my image to make him a little bit more palatable to me, a little bit more palatable to some of my lost family and friends. I would really like him to soften this edge. I'd really like to gloss over this part of the Bible. I'd like to take this particular teaching and just sort of go like, maybe that's what it means. The Samaritans don't welcome Jesus because he was determined to go to Jerusalem. There are many who do not welcome Jesus because Jesus holds a line that they don't agree with. And I'm here to tell you, Jesus seems to be completely comfortable being obedient. James and John are like, call down the thunder. Let's wipe them off the face of the planet. Jesus says, we're not doing that, guys. Rebukes his disciples and just goes to the next town. It's really pretty amazing when you think about it. One who could force himself upon us. One who had the right to impose upon the Samaritans because he owned it all. He made it all. He spoke it all into existence. One who could have gotten in there and argued with them and taught them. One who could have gone in there, done a few miracles and turned the whole crowd in his favor. What did he do instead? 
He just did what God wanted him to do. He just obeyed his father. He listened to his father. He did what his father told him to do. And I'm here to tell you, Jesus will not be crafted into your image. He will not be crafted into my image. He will not be crafted into the culture's image. He's not going to change. He's the unchanging one. The same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always the same. He's very predictable in these ways. You can count on him to always be holy. You can count on it, always. I think it's great, by the way, that Jesus sent his disciples ahead and gave an opportunity. It reminds me of Revelation 3.20, where Jesus says to one of the churches, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who opens it, I'll come in. I'll sup with him. I'll eat with him and he with me. I'll eat with her and she with me. We'll have relationship. We'll have fellowship together. I'll meet you right where you are. This is what Jesus is saying. I'll come to you. I'll come to you. I'll meet you exactly where you are. What's required? You have to open the door to the actual Jesus. You have to meet the real Jesus. And you have to take him as he actually is, which is God. That passage in Philippians, it closes after talking about the obedience of Jesus after saying he became obedient, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, it says, therefore, because of that, God has highly exalted him. That thing that Satan was offering as a shortcut, God had a design for already. That stuff, the worship of the nations already belonged to Jesus. By following God's path, everything was put under his feet. Therefore, because of that, God has highly exalted him to the right hand, the seat of power of the Father, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Your knee will bow. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Your tongue will confess. Your lost friends, your lost family members, their tongues will confess and their knees will bow that Jesus Christ is Lord you understand what that means. The victory that Jesus won for us was to be made right with the Father. The victory that Jesus won for himself was vindication and put in the place that was always his as the one who's in charge of everything. Not one that we negotiate with, not one that we change, but one that we submit our lives to. His victory allows us to be made right with God. And even now, he stands at the door of your life and knocks. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're doing right now. For the first time or for the 50 millionth time, he says, I'm ready to meet with you. I'm ready to be with you with whatever you're struggling with, with whatever you're hurting about, with whatever you're confused about, with whatever you're afraid of. He says, I'm here. But when you let him in, you know, you put your quarter in the machine, you get the full 30-second ride. When you let him in, he comes in as who he actually is. Which, by the way, is pretty great news. It's why Jesus over and over again says, 
It's hard for rich people to get saved. It's hard for self-righteous people to get saved. It's hard for people who have it all together to get saved. Because salvation comes for us when we say, I need some help. Help comes when we go to him and say, I need some help. Jesus said, I didn't come for well people. I came for sick people. I didn't come for found people. I came for lost people. I didn't come for helpful people. I came for helpless people. And just a beautiful verse in the Bible, Romans 10, 13. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That includes you and that includes me. As Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem and as we begin that journey with him towards the cross, even today, he's passing through our midst. I am one of his disciples coming to you and saying he wants to stay with you. And you, like the Samaritans, have an opportunity to respond to that, to receive him or to send him on his way. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for Jesus. And I mean, I thank you for the disciples. They make me feel a little bit less bad about my own ignorance, arrogance, self-righteousness and uh, confusion. And they let me see that you don't inflict pain and punishment on people that are like me. <laughs> I mean, you're not afraid to rebuke me. And you certainly give me consequences. But you took the punishment for my sin already on the cross. We know you're in our midst. We know that you long for fellowship and friendship and intimacy with us. We know that you're the unchanging one, perfectly carrying out, perfectly executing the will of God, your Father. We got a long way to go. For any who are here this morning, God, with the door closed, would you speak to them even now? Just call them by name. For those who are here confused, would you speak words of clarity and comfort to them? Just meet us in the moment. take the Lord's Supper together during these response moments. Invite you to take it if you're a follower of Jesus as you take it to remind yourself that Jesus won this victory with his obedience. We win the victory by faith in him. That's how we win. If uh, you'd like prayer or if you'd like to talk to me or to Josh, we'll be available uh, in the wings over here. This response moment's yours. Use it as the Lord leads you. We'll sing together again in just a few moments. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you have any questions about this message, our church, or the gospel, or if you'd like to get in touch with one of our elders, you can visit our website at www.redhill.church. 
navigate to the I'm New tab and click the option for Connection Card. Filling out this online card will allow you to get in touch with us and one of our elders will follow up as soon as possible. Thanks for listening and be sure to check back next week as we continue to study and apply God's Word together.